Brighton. So this is wholly unscripted and barely edited and saved for the time and might contain spoilers. But if you've ever been curious as to what goes on with a writer when he sits down with some friends at a coffee table, a couch, or somewhere outside, here's your chance to find out. This is Yogi Tigers. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Matthew W. Quinn. I am a teacher and writer based in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're here to talk about my new teen horror novel, The Thing in the Woods. So, I will admit, I mean, I read a fair amount of horror, but I'm not typically one to read material as, I would say, visceral as what you wrote here. Mm-hmm. Did you have any plan or expectations, or I suppose that's the wrong way to go about it, what kind of horror do you like to read, or what kind of horror is the best to you, the most enjoyable? And I suppose out of that same question, what feels most appropriate for teen horror, or best for that audience? Okay, um, well, I do like Dean Koontz's novels, um, Watchers and Phantoms. Okay. Oh, the first one of the book I've his I read was called Cold Fire. I don't really remember very much what Cold Fire is actually about. <laughs> Um, Stephen King is good, too, although I've read all his Dark Tower books. I haven't read it except chunks of it. The chunks of it I read are just too weird and gross. Have you seen the original with Tim Curry? I think it is. Yeah, Tim uh, Curry's The Clown. I saw some parts of it on YouTube. I did see the newest version. What were your thoughts? Hmm? Did you enjoy it? Uh, the first part was kind of boring. The second part <laughs> got much more interesting. It's a strange... I remember, I think... I saw it at a friend's house. Matt Pappas? I'll blink it out when we do the recording, or maybe not, I don't know. He's an interesting character, family from Poland, loved to collect animals. Then I must have been eight or so, he was probably nine or ten. We watched it, the Tim Curry version, which is not a good movie to watch when you're under ten years old. Mm-hmm. Genuinely surreal, bizarre, and terrifying, but also kind of gross. I remember the twist in it, though, is that it turned out to be a giant alien space spider that took the convinced you, or when you saw it, you perceived it as the manifestation of things you feared most. Yeah. So, was it Koontz? Was it King? Was there a particular one that was most um, dear to you, that you felt, this is the kind of story I want to tell? Well, this story actually came around because I was home from college, this is probably about 2006, at the East Cobb Borders. There used to be a Borders in East Cobb, there used to be a Borders everywhere. And I was reading Call of Cthulhu manual, and there was a (laughs) scenario they suggested, in which, you know, in the the Love Lovecraft stories, you know, it was very, out in the place where people are rural and inbred, there's all sorts of occultic and weird doings. And the scenario is, what happens if these areas become suburbanized? The phrase, um, supernatural love canal. Love canal is a town in New York where they built a suburb over um, Mm -hmm. an abandoned toxic waste dump. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. We're proud of that. Are you from near there? Uh, Yeah, I'm down by New York City, but the... (laughs) Uh, we have an interesting relationship with rehabilitating land around here and repopulating it or just papering over what used to be there. I mean, there's, of course, the classic, some of the classic horror novels, I suppose, where you could go off of the idea of things dredged up when people break ground in the city or 
we do foundations, and we do, in a truly horrific fashion, we've found, I think over the years, uh, slave burial grounds under portions of Manhattan, uh-huh. which is rather uncomfortable for, you know, the Union part of the country to deal with the idea that we were also a key figure in that time. Mm-hmm. So... Do you have a specific horror novel that stands to you as the pinnacle of what to achieve for? Is there a certain model you work with, depending on whether you're you're aiming for teen versus adult horror? Do you find there's a big difference between writing for those? Not really. I mean, I I sometimes I, I call a thing that was a teen horror novel, but it works for adults just as well as kids. I mean, I've sold. I talked to my publisher. I've told, sold over a thousand copies. You know, about 400 to 500 outright Kindle sales, mm-hmm. 66 Amazon paperback sales. I've sold or given away as like Christmas, like Christmas presents around 100 or so copies myself. Yep. And it's on Kindle, Kindle Unlimited, so it's about 450 borrows that he calculated, you know, how many pages. It came up about 400, the equivalent of 450 copies of the book. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure most of those people are getting it are not teenagers because teenagers, unless they're like the real older ones, <laughs> don't have credit cards and Amazon accounts. Is that, you did something interesting too. I think when the book initially released, you slashed the price fairly well down on the Kindle version. Yeah, the, Mr. Wills, the publisher, he um, said at the first five days at 99 cents, I think. No room. And then it went up for a bit because of an advertising campaign. Now I believe it's at two ninety nine again. Now this is this is your first full novel you sold on Kindle, but you sold a fair amount of stuff on the platform before. Oh uh, yeah, back in twenty twelve, I put some short stories up on there. Mm-hmm. It's self published, and then Mr. Wills bought a bunch of them, a bunch of short stories for the digital fiction publishing to be put in anthologies or standalone. Mm-hmm. So um, the only 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 a few stories I have left on Amazon are in my Kindle Direct account. Most of them are in his now. So how does that work? Is this effectively like a licensing relationship? Uh, yeah, he bought the first English rights worldwide. I think I okay. don't know how to do the contract. Okay, and out of that, he functions as both your agent and your publisher. In I suppose public. Well, no, KDP would be your publisher, but he functions effectively as your agent on the platform. Basically, he runs it through his KDP account and his Amazon Ads account. And that alleviates you from the headache of having to manage all of that yourself. Yeah. What's that conversation like, though? I mean, do you find it, obviously, you you find it beneficial to yourself, but do you feel it's the kind of, do you feel it's a new, it's demonstrative of the kind of relationship we'll see with a lot of self-published or indie writers nowadays? Well, the Kindle Direct thing is a platform, so small presses like Digital Fiction Publishing use it. I use it for my own things. Um, who knows if, it, if bigger platforms use if bigger you know, bigger publishers have the KDP account to create their eBooks? Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? So, when you let's get into the actual craft of the book itself, we'll get you know we'll get to the writing in a second. But I'm curious when it comes to things like the cover and deciding how to market it, how to promote it, what was that conversation like? Did you develop most of the content materials internally and then hand it all over to him? Did you hire a well, designer? I, I, I sent it, uh, the cover, 
I found a couple pieces of stock art, that background of the swamp, okay. and that kind of stylized sea serpent image. I emailed the links. He bought them. He assembled the cover into, into, into the cover himself. Okay. And it's awesome. Like, I have a short story collection called Flashing Steel, Flashing Fire mm-hmm. that had a piece of stock art for the cover, and it just was real pixelated, not very good looking. Oh. But this thing is beautiful. It's like uh, the... I, I the print the physical copies I've got are, remind me a lot of the shorter novels put out by the Bizarro publishers like Eraserhead and Deadite. Oh yeah, print quality and cover quality it looks great. No, it's a uh, we've used stock art for some of the, some of the folks we uh, work with who have made books, and we've had a couple graphic designers do it too. It's become a lot easier, I think, like with film, where the actual cost of investing in the creative element of this has dropped down significantly. Yeah, like the the, yeah, the way Flashing Seal, Flashing Fire turned out might be a function of its time because I self-published that on Amazon in 2014 mm-hmm. when K- K- Create Space was probably not as advanced as it is now because the thing in the woods, the print copies all come through Create Space. They look like professional books. Mm-hmm. So they could just be things of advance in three years. Create Space is effectively Amazon's hard copy printing and for the indie market they work with in KDP. Yeah, although now they're trying to make this thing called KDP Print. It could be they're just going to retire Create Space and make you run every th- all your print cop- things through KDP Print, all consolidated. It would make sense from a branding point of view. It's easier to just use the whole KDP lifecycle of products, and I just went back into full agency mode there. <laughs> oh, man. I was trying to avoid that this weekend. But, yeah, it's, a, it's hard, I suppose, to talk. <laughs> to talk about books nowadays without talking about the business and how the authors are involved in it because it's become a business in a sense in well let me ask you did you have to create any type of llc or anything else to protect your income on this or are you just fully taking it in as a revenue stream it's a revenue stream i mean he has he gets the money from amazon kdp like the way i would for my own stuff and then he pays all the he pays all the writers and the editors and and people he's hired. Okay. And it's so effectively a lot more money than I was on my own, so I'm cool with it. Effectively, you work as an independent contractor for him. And I guess. I mean, I sold him the rights, and he pays me royalties for the rights okay. for each month, and it's great. <laughs> it is nice to have reliable income as a writer, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is your plan to become a full-time writer, or do you enjoy this kind of happy medium between being a writer, teaching, and having a bit of time to yourself? Uh, being a full-time freelancer would be great because it allowed me to travel more, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have to you know, get up so early in the morning. But teaching is very reliable, and I have all summer to, to work on my own things. It was a lot more holidays than most people get. Like, I'm on Christmas break right now. I have two weeks off. And importantly, you can always require your writing as part of the curriculum for your class. No, not the high school. I can't do it. I'm also a social studies teacher, not an English teacher. I did donate a couple copies to my school library, and the kids and teachers are reading them. That's good. Any reviews? Um, as far as I know, not yet. If I'll look for... I'll I check on Amazon every so often for new reviews. If I have so, if I see any reviewer saying is my history t- is one star review <laughs> saying this is hit my history teacher and he failed me, or a five star review this is my history teacher and he well, really no. worked with me and helped me. Well, what you uh, need to do is I, you, I you just have to put a bit of incentive into the system. They get a certain amount of uh, 
bonus grade kickback for every star they give you. Um, that kind of like not getting fired for violating <laughs> <ethical> rules. <laughs> I suppose that might. I yeah, suppose. Should, if you watch The Walking Dead, I'm sure you know there are rules. That sounds familiar. <laughs> it is strange to think a post-apocalypse should have rules. Well, the big reveal that Negan was actually a high school gym teacher before everything went down. So, so that leads me to wonder: did that's he, how it works. Did he have the beating people with a bat fetish before the zombie apocalypse? No, the, I think the Lu- Lucille was something he put together after everything went down. There's a whole comic you can read online where that was the story. Oh, right. Uh, I mean, since we're on the topic, what's your, what are your thoughts on this pattern we've seen? I think it started with Lost and a few other franchises like it, where the story itself is scattered over multiple platforms and media. Uh, I'm, I, I don't really know. I, mean, I just know that the Walking Dead is a comic book, and they made it into a TV show. The comic book is still going. Mm-hmm. And then there's a TV, sh- there's a book series called Sharp in the '80s with Sean Sean Bean playing this British soldier. And the book series, they eventually started kind of tweaking the books a little bit li- li- to correspond to the TV show. Like Sharp, the character is supposed to be from London, but Sean Bean is from the north of England, so they worked in the backstory that Sean that Sharp had actually been born in the north somewhere and moved to London when he was younger. No okay. So I'm are you talking about they kind of sync each with each other? Well and I think Star Wars prior to the re reassemblage of the canon was hitting this point where they were telling stories at multiple different places in the timeline and allowing authors to explore different avenues or portions of it. But there, I think for me, as a consumer of narrative, for me the frustrating thing is particularly when it's in different media that requires different either subscriptions or physical material to engage in. So if it's a comic, do I need something to read the comic? Or do I have to buy the comic? And do I have to... Engage in enough of that to then get fully or understand truly what is occurring in the story that I see in a television series or vice versa. Yeah, yeah that was a problem with The Force Awakens is that you don't really explain very much. You had to you had to think about it a little bit to figure out that the resistance was the Republic's Contra army and the Empire had lost and is reorganizing and reasserting itself rather than just this, the war continues 30 years later. There's a fair bit of, I suppose, assumed knowledge, which I guess brings us to your book, because you do, to a certain degree, write historical fiction, just, although it sits mostly within the horror genre. I know yeah, you, you could call this historical fiction of the Great Recession, because Thing in the Woods takes place in about May of 2010. Okay. Let's get into it then. I know you you mentioned there was this premise you discovered from the Call of Cthulhu game, this idea of suburbanizing a more settled but somewhat or more established more ingrained population that liked or was comfortable with the way things were so you have this there's a, there's a fair amount of clash I mean you've got the racism which is rampant you have the first use of carpetbaggers I've seen in a long time in literature which is interesting to watch that mentality employed in a narrative and it's not a term from the North you tend to hear much anymore of. But Yeah, I, when I was a reporter in Griffin, I knew a woman who was from up from New England who had come south to live, and she ran for city council. Okay. County commission, sorry. And people actually called her a carpetbagger. Oh, wow. 
this was in like this is before I got there, so assume the late nineties, early aughts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I have that line Jane, from James Daly, the POV character, the thing in the woods. When someone calls him a carpetbagger, he's like, "Really?" <laughs> it, it is from being being from Atlanta, which is more cosmopolitan and not steeped in tradition and history the way much of the South is. He had probably never heard anyone using that word outside of a history book before. Yeah, it was the eighteen. 18, I'll throw out 1820s, 1830s. My history friends uh, are going to scream. But the carpetbagger was people who came from the north to the south after the Civil War to make right. money, and so that is they had carpet suitcases. Right, and there's a connotation of opportunism in it. Yeah, like they're taking advantage of us when we're beat down and ruined by the war. Hence the resentment. Yeah. So, so and did, telling you know teaching the former slaves to read, they hated that too. <laughs> Did you did you decide upon your viewpoint character of James to begin with, or was that something you came across later? I can't remember because I started writing it. It was originally a short story sometime in 2007. Okay. And I just let it sit for years until probably about 2012 through 2013 where I just binged it all in about a year or so. I just finished the rest of it. What do you think at that point was keeping you from finishing the story? It, during the earlier period, I just had other things to work on, other projects that were more interesting. Mm-hmm. And when I started writing it, it was just sometimes hard to keep focused. So one way I kept on task was I'd commit to have a chapter for the writing group the next week before I wrote it. Okay. So I'd better have that chapter done by the, the Sunday a week before the Sunday meeting. Did you? Were there any requirements into in terms of the quality of it, or was it just simply have it written? Uh, there's not any requirements, but I generally, before writing group, I generally finish a chapter, print it, go back over the pen, revise, mm-hmm. and then submit it. So it wouldn't be the first draft one of the writing group, it would probably be the second. No, so still a fairly early piece. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's reminiscent of one of my professors, Sidfield from USC. He would always say to us before we finished class, he said, now remember, I want 10 shitty pages for next week. Don't disappoint me. Did yeah, there's be- a, a writer I'm friends with named Delilah S. Dawson, and she talks. She talks about how you, the first draft doesn't have to be good and really can't be good. She calls it word vomit. You know, <laughs> yeah, the page, get it done. Mm-hmm. And I think one of her blog posts it showed like the first paragraph she wrote like is a western. It's um very just basic and not even really in dialect. And then the second draft it starts getting more and more dialectical. Mm-hmm. That's the right word. Do you Just get it on the page quick? Revise it later. You find it easier to revise, I think, or I imagine, than to get the first pieces out there. Uh, well, I, I think the idea is that um, I don't want to waste the group's time with something I could have fixed earlier mm. on my own. And how long did it take you to finish writing the book the second time? Finish writing the thing in the woods completely. I would suggest. I think probably a year, maybe a little less. Okay. What was what was that initial kernel? I mean, I know you you had the piece, the idea. Did you see the cult first? Did you see Phil, the cult leader? What was your first entry into this world as you were? Writing? I think it was the, the 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 ATV race scene. Really, something in the woods. People on the the something. Well, the, the original draft of the creature was something that could fly. So something up in a tree with tentacles. <laughs> 
That sounds unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I guess to give people a bit of context on this, the basic idea is this: James is about to go into college. His family moves for financial reasons out to a more remote part of Georgia, and he's not particularly well settled in. He's working at Best Buy. He's not comfortable, and through some shenanigans with the locals, he gets embroiled into this ATA race as a pissing challenge. Yeah, pretty much. And and the tail end of it, they have their first encounter with the thing. And you do something interesting, which is that in the prologue to the book, you show us the monster. Mm-hmm. Was that an early choice? Was that something you'd always planned to do? Was this something that came out of the revision process? Because that's, for horror, fairly unusual. Not just to say, oh, here's the monster, but oh, here it is. Here's what it does. Here's how it eats in all its visceral glory. Well, maybe it's like Jurassic Park, where you you don't see the Velociraptor full on, but you see its outline, its eyes, and its head. Mm-hmm. And then, so you know what you're dealing with, even if you don't see it, anything lizardy full on for another 20 or 30 minutes. There is certainly a Lovecraftian quality to the beast you've created. I imagine that was intentional. Yeah. Shoggoth, by any chance? No, not a Shoggoth. A Shoggoth is too much like an amoeba. Oh, right. With like a bazillion eyes and tendrils. This thing is like a, like an oceanic predator. Yeah, it was water-dwelling. I think you described the water's brackish. It had multiple radiant azure eyes, tentacles, beaks. One-eyed, one-armed purple people-eater. Uh, it's only got one mouth and lots and lots of teeth and right. lots of tentacles, some of which have claws on the end of them. I take it you're commissioning a plushie of this, right? Now, the idea of tie-in products greatly amuses me, but that would be a pretty messed-up parent to get their kid a plushie, and a pretty messed-up kid would like it. You'd be surprised. I know some years ago we purchased for Ken a Hello Cthulhu doll. There's a little plush Cthulhu doll with ribbons in his tentacles. Oh, those things are cute, though. This thing is spiky and scary. Mm, yeah, that would take a bit more effort. I imagine if you put up the comment, the idea on Etsy, someone would do it for you, though. Worth a... Yeah, I want to have you know tie-in merchandising, diverse, <laughs> diversify that revenue stream. There you go. So, you establish, I think, both the historical context for a bit of the historical context for this creature, in the sense that it's always been there. It's been there since the the native tribes first lived there. It was there protecting them from the effort to push the Trail of Tears. It was there during the Civil War. There's a certain sense of pride in this cult that is deeply apparent and almost brazen in the way that they perform their rites. And I think the cult leader, Phil, goes about his daily meanderings and ponders what he should use the cult for. Yeah. What was it like to write that character? Because Phil is a hateful monster. But I think you made an effort to try to make him, to a certain degree, sympathetic. Well, yeah, I mean, everyone is a hero of their own story. No one thinks themselves as evil. I mean, if you have someone with no redeeming qualities, that's probably Reed. <laughs> True. Reed, is he's just a borderline, if not outright psychopath, a horrible racist, and just a general jerk. So, Whereas, you know, Phil, I mean, he's a small business owner, a decorated veteran, a mm-hmm. family man. He just happens to worship a tentacle monster in the woods and feed people he doesn't like to it. Uh, what qualifies as people he doesn't like? Because it's a fairly long list. Well... In the beginning of the homeless guy, he was a obnoxious, belligerent drunk who made life difficult for small business owners in the downtown. 
Um, that was Leroy Tolliver. Yeah, Leroy. Okay. And um, let's see. And he references how if um, the local movie theater owner had showed the movie Bruno, he would have fed him to the tentacle monster too. <laughs> Maybe we need to have one of those installed in Hollywood. Yeah, feed Harvey Weinstein to it. I'm okay with that idea. <laughs> yeah. Phil probably would be too. He'd probably view Weinstein as a gross degenerate. It's interesting. There's a certain... Well, I know Phil puts on the trappings of the native populations, and I don't think it's intended to be as respectful as it is to try to preserve this idea of an ancient ritual and rite that predates the, the people who are using your calling upon now. Yeah, the, the that that robe he wears that was the high priest's robe of the of the, the Indians before the settlers killed them, and then when the thing began eating them, they just started it up again. You, you do have a whole history to the persistence of this cult and how it's involved in various conflicts. How certain so, how soldiers vanished trying to go into the woods in which it inhabits, and did that. Did that come to you naturally? Was this something that you just saw based upon tying historical events to if this creature existed, what would happen? Or how did you go about doing that? Pretty much that. I mean, you have the cult is, you know, Eddington is getting, is where Metro Atlanta bleeds into middle Georgia. Okay. And in middle Georgia, that's where the hell the, the plantation belts were because that's where the cotton was grown. Like Terra from Gone of the Wind is around Jonesboro, mm-hmm. which is south of Atlanta. So Eddington is geographically about where Sonoya is. So it's getting to Sonoya is where they film The Walking Dead. <laughs> so, so, so we would be getting into the area where there'd be widespread slavery. So if you're trying to keep slaves from running away, you know, you could beat the crap out of them, or you could just feed one or two of them to the tentacle monster and make people aware of what you're doing to them, so no one dares run away. Like it's notable among the local redneck kids, the one who is most aware of what is in the tree farm and why they shouldn't go near it is the black kid. Because in his family history, there's likely these, there, there are the stories of what happened to relatives or those who tried to escape. Yeah. The, 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 the African-American community of Eddington probably knows of a white person is trying to take you to tree farm. Do not go with him. You're not coming back mm. in a way that the local white population for the most part probably does not. Right. As exemplified by Leroy at the beginning of the book. And Phil becomes rather liberal with his definition of an undesirable as the story progresses. It becomes, I would say, more pragmatic. Yeah, I mean, he's the, the personality type I've developed with Phil is he's kind of just a general authoritarian type who just doesn't like disorderliness. Okay. Like in one part of like, like um, he, he's, refer- he's very strong. Read between the lines, you realize it was him who had murdered the civil rights activists. Mm-hmm. But he explicitly says he didn't really doesn't care if black people voted so long as they didn't vote for people who'd cause him problems. <laughs> like the rival business owner who's putting him out of a job. Yeah, or or how, you know, he's when, the, when he was in the military in Vietnam, he didn't like, quote-unquote, white trash, you know, clan types, because the Vietnam Army had a lot of racial problems. Mm-hmm. But again, he was willing to murder civil rights leaders because, not leaders, activists, because the previous high priest told him to, you know, chain of command, authority, Hierarchy, authority, you know, you do what you're told, other people do what you tell them. Yeah, there's a there's a rather brutal raid he orders conducted on an Indian, not Native American, but Indian family. Mm-hmm. Under the premises that the premise that they are one friends of a witness to someone who escaped the thing, but also that 
they're just too alien for the community he wants to preserve. Which is, I suppose, kind of surreal, because there's this horror that's the visceral horror of the story, which is the monster devouring people, and it's mostly on screen. Coupled with the strange reality that these people are willing to embrace something horrifying and alien as part of their norm, as part of their life and part of their history, so long as it protects them from things that they view as threats. Well, I mean, to them, it's not alien. They've grown up knowing there's this thing in the woods we feed animals and people to. Mm-hmm. And yet waves and waves of middle-class yuppies from Atlanta or people who are from India, that's weird and new to them. When you were developing the history of this thing, did you... How'd you go about doing it? Because you do have these scenes and chapters from the perspective of the monster itself, which is unusual. Well, I have this whole cosmology building up that we'll get into in the second book I'm working on now, The Atlanta Incursion. That's the working... That's a working title. Someone said I should call it The Thing Under the Overpass. <laughs> oh. But the, the main problem of the Atlanta incursion are actually the greys. You know, the UFO lore yep. types. Okay. The other creatures of the things type don't show up until the very end. I suppose it would be a spoiler to ask if they're at all related. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail of a book that's not even done yet. No worries. Well, in that case, anything you tell me is entirely suspect. Yeah. The broad <laughs> outlines are plan are going to stay, but there could be fiddling. Oh, sure, not a problem. So, did you have a? Did you go into this thinking you were going to create a mythos, or is that something that the book inspired you to do? It just built. It, the tale grows with the telling. I mean, it started out as a short story, mm-hmm. then it became a novel. Then, if I was wanting to have more novels, what story would I have? And there is the, you know, there is the men, the men in black dude who shows up a couple times, and so the, people like that don't just show up. It's not like word of this craziness going on got to you know the army or the CIA, and they just made up something on the spot <laughs> no you, you do I think at the book too at the very end hint at the sudden realization of wait what if this wasn't an isolated moment or thing thing <laughs> let's talk about that moment though the the point where you decided this is no longer a story it's a novel did you convince yourself of that or is it something someone brought to you I convinced myself that this kept getting longer and longer and more and more st- Stuff start going in the outline. Okay. What, what, what part of the story wanted to be told that wasn't in there originally? I I, re- I can't remember. Norris, was it always from the point of view of James though, or did that? I don't. I don't really remember either. I would think so because you would need a protagonist. Certainly. Although you do tend to da- to bounce around between him, Amber, and a few of the other characters. It's, you have James, I would say, as the protagonist, but the point of view is fairly flexible. Yeah, James protagonist. I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said it was from a young, if you want to make it fully young adult, mm-hmm. it would have to be solely from the young adult point of view. Right. And it was already pretty short for novel to start out with. If I cut all the adult POVs, all the Sam POVs, all the Phil POVs, Mm-hmm it would be only about 40,000 words. So about a third of it is told from perspective of adults. 
Right. And the, the part of the reason we've spent so much time talking about Phil is that he's probably the other most written and established character there. You spend a fair amount of time working through his rationales and his perspectives. And I don't know, I, I understand because this is something you see in movies too. If you want the star to be the star of the film, they have to have the most dialogue typically. Yeah, well, with Phil, with Phil, I wanted to build up, you know, the create a better antagonist, especially because the way this book is written, you could it leaves one open to accusations of just oh these bad Southern people, and you see that in the media a lot. You know, who's an acceptable target? Mm-hmm. And yet we have Amber and Sam, who are Southerners, who are good people. They're not part. I mean, you could write off James as being from Atlanta. That's not Georgia. Sure, but. But you know, Sam and Amber are good people. Well, then they also Phil both have... could be better than he is, which is pretty bad. <laughs> would take a little effort. But Sam and, Sam and Amber both have family... Well, I think it's to both Sam and Amber's point. It's almost impossible to not have family involved with the cult somehow or have history with it. Yeah, they're all... Yeah, if you pick... I don't know if you picked up, but Sam, Phil, and Amber are all actually related to each other. Mm-hmm. Very distantly, like by marriage. Yeah, that's part of, in a sense, what almost protects them from Phil to a degree, because as willing as he is to excise certain elements from the population or even from his own cult, he is so deeply reluctant to remove members of his own family, extended or otherwise. Let's talk about the visceral element. Was that something you wanted from the beginning, or did it just feel natural to the story you were telling? That's just how I write in general. Okay. I mean. Like, um, it's just like, it's always very violent. Like, if, like I wrote some Harry Potter fanfic. Oh no. One, one story is called the wrath of the half blood prince It's the teen Snape making some better decisions. Okay. So much sectum sempra. Do you remember what that was? Oh no. Refresh me on. That's one where you waved your spell, your wand and slashes a target like a sword. <laughs> like you've seen the flashback when James and Potter and his friends, Harry's dad are ganging up on him and beating him up. He slashes one across the face. Like, Four bullies are punching you. Slash one of the knife. <laughs> so that's bloody and icky. Mm-hmm. But I probably dwell on it a lot more than the book actually does. Yeah, I would I would argue there's a little bit of intestinal fortitude involved in reading the book. Oh yeah, it's um. I was talking to my mom at a family party the other night, and she's about halfway through. <laughs> oh no! And I was reading, doing a reading of it, my first book signing. I read the death of Leroy, and she's just sitting up front, looking more and more horrified. Is your family behind this kind of storytelling, or was this a bit of a surprise to them to discover this is what you write? I was one who wanted to see arachnophobia when I was five years old. It shouldn't be a surprise. My <laughs> family's always very supportive. I mean, I wrote, the, I finished Thing in the Woods because I was moved back home to go to grad school mm-hmm. to get to be a teacher when I when newspapers didn't work out anymore. And so if I if I you know if they didn't let me move back home, I'd have to get a, another sort of job to stay afloat and I'd cut into my writing time significantly. So, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due there. Do you find in teaching history that you have your students dwell upon the actual brutality of what's occurred? Because I remember when I was a kid, the history books were rather circumspect about that. Well, that's one way to, we're getting a little off topic, but that's one way to keep the kids attention is to talk about the really nasty stuff in history. Like, Tamerlan, the Central Asian warlord, sacked the city of Delhi and built a pyramid of 60,000 human heads. Mm-hmm. That always keeps their interest. 
My father is a huge history buff, and one of the things he always liked to harp upon was the idea that history is boring if you just focus on the memorization of when things occurred. Yeah, the, John Green calls it the tyranny of dates. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the, con- the historical context of the thing in the woods is very U.S. history, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the models I use for the, the stuff that goes down in the Atlanta incursion, like with the grays and the tentacle critters, those are that's more world based. Okay. Yeah. So you can tell from this one you'll and from the next one that is written by a history teacher. <laughs> Where do you what's your what are your sources? Where do you go for your, your research or inspiration when it comes to developing mythos like this? Um, the internet is a biggie, you know, the almighty Wikipedia, that helps. Mm-hmm. I don't remember getting any like for my, I have this post-apocalyptic steampunk western series I'm working on. The first one is called, called Battle for the Wastelands. It's being considered by a major military sci-fi publisher now. Okay. But for that one, I actually had to read full books and do a lot of research. But Thing in the Woods takes place in our world, except there's a tentacle monster. That, that sounds pretty accurate to the way things are right now. Yeah, and so, I mean, Eddington owes a lot to the city of Griffin, where I used to be a reporter, and the city of McDonough, where I used to live. So there's a lot of stuff I remember from those communities, like the way the street's laid out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, certainly a, a sense of familiarity James is able to express with this community. Do you do you find yourself identifying with him as a character? Um, I don't know. I mean, if I were from Buckhead, where I live now... And all of a sudden, my dad decided, decided, hey, I've got this promotional law firm. We should buy a bigger house. And then moved out to what, I, what he calls redneckistan or deliverance <laughs> country. <laughs> I would not be happy either. It is a... I think it's almost necessary to have both the point of view of Phil and James because there are, to a certain degree, similarities between their perspectives. Oh, do tell. There... It's not per se that I would see James becoming Phil if he stayed too long, but they both despise what has become of the life and the way they wanted things to go. Phil sees his community becoming soiled and corrupted. James sees his future falling into shambles because he has lost control of it. And they're both, in a way, an invasive and an unwarranted intrusion into the, other, into the other's life. It's... I think... Even if you were just to trim the story down to those two points of view and reveal everything else through other means, you would have to keep both James and Phil to get that sense of opposition. And I think to your point, to your argument, you know, to give, to avoid the easy act of vilifying the rural southerner, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know if you've ever read Barry Hanna. No, I haven't. What's he's, that? He's a writer, a southern writer. You might like him a lot because he goes into semi-surreal, semi-grotesque, Flannery O'Connor, deeply, darkly humorous writing and depictions of life in the South, all the way from the Civil War on. And it's, it's beautiful writing, but also grotesque and surreal in the way he goes into exploring how people collapse. I think there's one you might enjoy called Rat-Faced Auntie. It's a collection of... Sh- it's, he's mostly a short story writer, although some of his short stories are well on 30 or 40 pages. Anti, like ant? Yeah, as in as in your ant. There's okay, because no- I'm looking, Googling rat face ante and I can't see anything. Oh. Like, nothing's coming up. Okay. Barry Hanna? Yeah, B-A-R-R-Y-H-A-N-N-A. His, the most recent compilations, I think, Big Something Happy. I'm forgetting the middle word. 
Uh, American novelist and short story writer from Mississippi. Okay, he has his own Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah. One of my writing teachers, Jason Ockert, introduced him to me many years ago through two stories. One was Water Liars, which is about old men lying as they fish. And Mm -hmm. what leads them to that state? Another, I think we read, was The Testimony of Pilate, which is one of his longer short stories and cruel (laughs) in many ways. But I think... Do you find it easy to... it would be easy to make these characters caricatures because particularly in the North, we tend to have certain views of rural South, which are, I suppose, not endearing. Mm-hmm. Have you encountered any of that coming back up North or? Well, not really. My friend David was in law school and he um, said that people, he, he, he and I grew up together in Cobb County. And when he went to NYU for law school, people thought that Georgia was just one big farm. <laughs> And my former girlfriend is from New Jersey, and she's she's another teacher. And when she when they were teacher school friends found out she's taking a job in Georgia, they're making jokes about you know what happens if you add one peach and two peach, you get three peaches, and that's teaching math in Georgia. Oh, oh, boo! <laughs> I don't think they were being really snobby. I think they were trying to be funny, but still. If you were to adapt this into a film or television, which do you think or tele TV series? Which do you think would be more effective for telling the story first? Well, I have on my on my blog, The World According to Quinn, a blog post how I would adapt it into a TV show. It would be one of those short shows like the British miniseries. TV series, okay. Where you, about I've plotted out about eight episodes. Like the first episode is Tolliver getting eaten, and all the way to James coming home and we meet Amber. Okay. Then episode two is the dinner at Zaxby's. They meet the redneck kids. And it ends with Bill, James trying to get Bill, local redneck kid who's racing against, out from under a fallen ATV, and all of a sudden the water starts roiling. Hmm. And episode three is um, the tentacle monster killing Bill and chasing James all the way to um, Phil sending the cultists to go attack the Indian family, and so on and so forth. So eight episodes, each being covering about two to three chapters in the book. Yeah, it does pace out rather well. Yeah, I mean, if you trimmed it down a little bit, it would be a good um, miniseries, like the, which I don't really know I'm sure if they have any of those anymore. But back in the day, they used to have a lot of like mm-hmm. three-hour miniseries, two-hour-and-a-half blocks each night. And S.M. Sterling, he's a writer I admire, and I talked to him at Dragon Con. Like, last Dragon Con, he signed like eight books I brought for him. <laughs> good man. And he, um, he says books make good miniseries like the stand stephen king's you know, mm-hmm. giant monster book about the flu that kills everyone mm-hmm. and the antichrist that's that was a miniseries roots was a miniseries but the thing one of kurt russell is based on a short story called who goes there okay so with a and game of thrones each book is a t is a season of the tv show Sure, and a big budget one of that because you just the cast and everything to manifest the real, make that world real. Yeah, thing in the woods be done much more cheaply. Although you would probably either need a decent CGI or a big old monster puppet. I was about to say because there's a there's a constant fight between how to show the monster, and it can quickly turn a narrative, visual narrative, into something comedic if it is not yeah, done that- well. Yeah, if this was a TV show, probably you wouldn't actually see the 
monster full-on mouth and teeth and whatnot during the prologue. Like, maybe they just tie him down to pick Leroy down to the picnic table and, like, a tentacle to slither out of the water, spear him, and yank him off into the water, and that's all you see. So all you really would need is a tentacle and a spike on the end. Mm-hmm. And maybe you wouldn't even see the whole thing until for um, the, tr- the tree farm scene, the, the ATV race scene, or the scene where Phil has one of the cultists sacrificed to stop a mutiny against him. Well, I think like, part have of you seen Deep Ri- have you seen Deep Rising? No, is that the one with the super sentient sharks? No, that's no, Deep that's Blue Deep Blue Sea. Sea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Deep Rising is the one with Treat Williams on a cruise ship. Okay, and there's and you keep seeing these various fanged tentacle snake things that attack people, and then at the very end, it turns out those are all tentacles of something that's big. Mm. Like a like a giant fanged monster squid thing, and I love my really bad jokes. And so, Treat Williams and the last survivors just come in the in the room where the, the core of the monster is. Mm-hmm. This giant tentacle horrors looming over them, and Treat Williams is like, that's not something you see every day. <laughs> They're. I will admit, when I first saw pictures of or first envisioned the monster reading it, the thing I saw was a creature from the uh, the Final Fantasy game series, the Marlboro. The, the or, Marlboro, like the cigarettes? Yes. It's also called Oscar on occasion, depending Final on which... Final Fantasy, Fantasy, Oscar, Monster. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'm seeing this. Um, it, it typically yeah, does things I can like... See it's mostly it's skinnier, more like a shark. This thing looks more like the, the critter from... Um, the, the one really the, the, the little shop of horrors. Oh, Audrey. It looks mine is more sharky and snaky. This thing looks like Audrey. Yeah, yours has more of a body that is sectioned. I suppose there's a there's a it, it's less of a couche ball and more of a skeleton. Yeah, Although, it's like very serpentine. Yeah, you know you've got the big old head in the front, long snaky body, lots of tentacles. Okay, what were you thinking initially when you came up with this? Did you start drawing it? Did you just see it in full? I probably doodled it. I don't really remember how it came to be, how it transitioned from a winged squid, the original, in the very original short story, to right. a um, the, something the size of a tractor trailer truck. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it was always, I mean, I, or plus, I think an original version of it, I think it was green. <laughs> but Uh-oh. this version of the final version is long and black it's like a seal so since we're talking about the adaptation we do have to discuss casting and obviously the most important choice is the voice of the thing what are your thoughts well the thing never talks I mean from its POV you can tell it's an intelligent being sure but it's not like it's going to suddenly start you know trash talking at people <laughs> no then we'd end up with Dracula 3000 I suppose so as a different way to go about it is how would you show that intelligence in a visual medium? That's a tricky part, especially if you don't see its head. In the, because when when Leroy is taught, when it first appears about to kill Leroy, Leroy starts insulting it, and it reacts like a person would if you insulted it. Mm-hmm. Like it looks at him funny. Mm-hmm. You'd almost have to go the, the Wally route and giving it a recognizable body language or something resembling a means of communication. Or, well, I suppose you can go the fully alien route, which is that even if it is communicating something that's incomprehensible to the viewer, 
Mm-hmm. But if you want to show, it's hard because a surreal alien intelligence would not be able to communicate per se the same feelings that we experience, or it could do so, but we wouldn't be comprehending that, which makes for a difficult visual narrative or visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And if you were to go from the monster cam, you run into the challenge of just becoming fully hokey. Say, Snow Beast. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, is that that bad movie from the 70s? Yeah. My friend Nick is part of a group called Cineprov in Atlanta, and I think they did an, an episode on Snow Beast, or they're going to do, and I don't know when it's going to run. Okay, so... They can do snow bleast, but you have to re- you have to one up them with Blood Tide, which has James Earl Jones in it, and nuns and a sea monster cult. The version we saw, James Earl Jones had his name removed from the credits. If that gives you any idea of how proud he is of this role, oh, I could watch the whole thing on YouTube if I wanted. Oh, you should treat yourself, or make it a family day. I treat myself or torment myself, maybe. <laughs> it's a little bit of both. It's better watch with friends because it is... Uh, the premise, if I'm not mistaken, is this couple decides to go vacation on the Grecian Isles and the wife or the girlfriend is ostensibly there to restore this piece of artwork that has been found in an old church. And there's some, you know, harvest ritual or the equivalent of this being enacted in the town. They sacrifice a goat or something to the sea gods and things start to go horribly wrong. But one of the worst moments is when she eventually restores the painting by peeling off the outer layers of it to discover what's depicted underneath. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to describe it because that and the moments James Earl Jones are in the movie. Okay, well, actually, I can give James Earl Jones away without too much of a, a spoiler. He's a treasure hunter who's there in the aisles with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And to give you an idea of perhaps why he doesn't want his name attached to this in any long-term fair. The main scene with him, he is lying in his skimpy little bathing suit on a beach, quoting Othello, while he scoops watermelon out of the the shell and watches his busty sidekick swim in the beach. Is his sidekick white? Oh, yes, and blonde, and eventually the monster finds her. Oh, dear. Oh, yes, but this this is Joan's big scene in the movie. And I honestly cannot do it justice without having, without you watching it first, because it's just this moment of wondering as the audience, were we going for comedy? Were we going for horror? Or did we find that beatific moment that is both? Mm-hmm. Do you watch a lot of horror for the serious thrill of it? Or do you find yourself, if for the joy, going to, or for, you know, for enjoyment purposes, just going into more campy fare? Enjoyment purposes, because I am not. There's the the torture porn movies. I will not watch them. Tarantino's. I'm not going to watch hmm? the Hostel and what's the other Hostel one? Saw yeah. Human Centipede. Oh, the Human Centipede. Uh, <laughs> no, this just the, the, it, scary stuff is fun. Sadism and pain and icky is not fun. So you didn't ask for Tusk as part of your Christmas gifts? No, I did not watch. Ask for Tusk. <laughs> For those of you not in the know, instead of the human centipede, it's that human walrus. Oh, God, what were they thinking? No, I, I remember. I, mean, I can't really complain. People probably think I'm a lunatic. No, I remember now. It came. It was originally an idea that they came up with on their podcast as an offhanded comment. And as folks with the resources are sometimes want to do, they made it real. Mm-hmm. With 
the magic of movies. Mm-hmm. If you could do any horror story, just unlimited resources, whoever you wanted, whatever the media, what would you do? Well, um, the thing in the woods would be a good start. Okay, so let's making and also Dean Koontz's book Watchers has been adapted like six different ways, all crappy. <laughs> I'd do that too, but Thing in the Woods would be a good starting point because it'd probably be done more cheaply. Okay, so let's do Thing in the Woods. Who would you cast? I haven't really put a whole lot of thought into it. You'd probably need um some people who are about the right age or a little older. Like the only definitive thing is Amber, as I imagined her, kinda of looks a lot like Taylor Swift. You know, but she's not going to be. I've never heard of her acting before. And if you want to pay her to act, you have to pay her <laughs> a lot of money. So someone who's tall and skinny and blonde. Uh, th- there have been a lot of actors who've made their debut in smaller ho- in Hollywood or horror flicks and the like. Let's see. So yeah, you could go something like that. You could have a Michael Sarah type character for James. Yeah, James is dark. James' hair is darker than Michael Sarah. He can wear a wig. Or okay. actually, no. Um, how is it the, the the guy who plays the Flash is probably too old now. There's the one who plays Spider Man, or someone around that age, I guess. And yeah, Tom like Holland. A, if Tom Holland had freckles, makeup that would look authentic, or just or just <laughs> no. You just take a paintbrush. It'll be different every time. Yeah, you might want to just avoid that. <laughs> no, just go full camp, screw the consistency, drive those fans crazy. Yeah, I'm imagining Tom Holland from Spider-Man as as James, but James is a probably, Tom Holland as Spider-Man is real happy-go-lucky, and James, I think, is a darker, more serious personality. Yeah, I suppose that's why I looked at, I considered the, the more sullen-type characters you get with Sarah and those actors... I imagine on the young adult television shows, you could probably call one of those from it. The, yeah, the CW. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the CW. Oh, sorry. Bronchitis is lovely. Understandable. Yeah, no, that that could work nicely. So then, okay, let's do Phil. I think Phil's an important casting decision. Yeah, he's an older man. About probably about, he's a Vietnam. He was a he was a captain in Vietnam, so he'd probably been a bit older even then. So he'd have to be about 60 or 70 now. It might be the same age, roughly, as George W. Bush or Donald Trump or mm, Jim mm. Webb. William Shatner. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just the southern accent alone. Phil is more impressive and not goofy. Okay. I'm going to feed you to this tentacle monster now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, God, the ritual scenes would be priceless. This is not supposed to be a comedy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Usually I'm the one pushing things toward the darker end on these. Uh, let's see. Okay, so Shatner aside, who could we have? Michael Ironside, too, I don't think he'd really work. For starters, Phil has hair. Hmm. Besides, Michael Einstein is Ironside. He just does, he, he's too sneery for Phil. Hmm. Phil is too righteously mad. And so is Jeremy Irons. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, Irons would get the menacing across, but I don't think he'd convey any kind of sympathy. Yeah, Phil is, in many ways, Phil is sympathetic. He's just mean. Bill Nye. 
too skinny. True. You could fatten him up a little or give him a prosthetic well, paunch. Well, maybe if you made him work out a lot more. That's true. I mean, he's supposed to be an ex- a former vet or a vet. Let's see. So Once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, let's see. It's an interesting one to cast because you need someone that is... Uh, he has to give off the idea, he has to convey the sense of a patriarch. Yeah. Someone respected and feared. Yeah. But not too old. Sutherland. Which one? You know, Kiefer's getting to that point where he could do it. It would have been Donald in the good old days, but he'd. Yeah, he's he's Kiefer Sutherland's old dark hair, but these are the. I'm trying to see, but these might be older pictures. I could see Kiefer doing it. Yeah, that's inter- that's an interesting idea. Kiefer Sutherland is Phil. Let's see. So, other main characters you've got Amber. We have James, who are the teen. Donald Sutherland might work, except now that he's he looks way too old as President Snow. Yeah, he he's hit that point where President Snow works, and but I would say a younger Donald Sutherland or let Keith or just ham it up and embrace what his father would do. Mm -hmm. That could work, and then you've got James. You've got Sam, and who's the reluctant lieutenant. Of yeah, Sam is a Gulf War vet. He's about the age of my uncle. So um, he'd have to be about, um, say he was 20 and 91. So he'd have to be about 40. Because hmm. that's a whole plot point. He and his wife are about the same age, and right. they haven't had kids. And if they're not able to have kids now, they're running out of time. See, so who, some, someone who's in his 40s. would be a good Sam? Someone who can play the sympathy up, but also leave you wondering whether he's going to become the villain in the end or save you. Yeah, and who can credibly shoot somebody. True. Yeah, because he's a combat vet, so he was in the mm. Battle of Medina Ridge, I think. Tom Hardy. Uh, that might work. Or you know, Chris Pine's too goofy. Not Chris Pine. Oh, um, there. <sighs> Guardians of the Galaxy. Chris Pratt? Pratt. He's too he's too young looking. Yeah, that's my problem. Hardy has a bit more of that grizzled look to him. Yeah, Hardy might work, although he's isn't Tom Hardy British? Mm, it's never stopped them before from affecting southern accents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well is a different story, but speaking of Chris Pratt, could Jennifer you think Jennifer Lawrence would work as Amber? Yeah, someone of that caliber could certainly do it. Yeah, because part of Amber, you don't really see it a whole lot. Amber can use a gun. You see more of that in the sequel. I have her shooting gray aliens with a shotgun of depleted uranium shells. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to give her more narrative heft in another book. Yeah, that was like some... You know, they say never read the reviews, but I have. And some of the criticism that Amber is not a very strong character. I think part of the challenge is that Amber... And you do have, particularly at the end there, as they're taking on the cult, her struggling with what the right moral, ethical, compulsive thing to do is and what the pragmatic thing to do is. And which of those will be the better thing to help her friends in the end, whether charging on or keeping the ride safe? Yeah, Jennifer, the more I think about it, Jennifer Lawrence could be a good Amber, but I think she's a little too old. Because Amber is supposed to be 17, 18. Hollywood is those age regression machines, don't they? I guess. I mean, it's called plastic surgery or prosthetics or makeup. I mean, but someone of that, someone of that genre of actor. Plus, her hair is too dark. Well, as 
I think we could rectify that with a little bit of dire wigging. Or we could just CGI it if we have the... <laughs> like we did, they did with Superman's mustache. In Justice League. Let's not go there. <laughs> okay, so... Um, okay, so... Don, Kiefer Sutherland as Phil. Uh, so Sam... Okay, Tom Hardy's a little too British. <laughs> also, isn't Tom Hardy really jacked? Mm. Sam, I imagine, a little skinnier. Let's starve Tom Hardy for a couple months. Who was the guy who played Yondu in um, yes. Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I am blanking on him, but he could work quite well. <laughs> who played Michael Rooker? Who's Mike? What does he look like without his the makeup on? Kind of grizzled. What? Yeah, Michael Rook. He could. He could actually work. Not really. He could potentially be Phil. Could be Phil. Could be Reed. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe Reed. Reed's his point is he's a violent thug. He doesn't really have that much of a personality. Yeah, Reed is interesting. He's even Phil almost lays the trope on him of his role. What do you mean? Phil acknowledges that one, the cult always needs the enforcer character who's too obedient. Mm-hmm. And too loyal and too unquestioning. But that also will have to be reined in because if left to do his own thing, we'll always go overboard. Yeah. It's in a weird it's weird because Phil is a Phil is almost a self aware villain. He's mm-hmm. missing a little bit of that remorse and reflection, but he's quite aware of the role he is playing in any given moment and what effect that will have on the people around him. And I guess if you were to contrast that, particularly in the film, James would have to be in many ways the opposite, trying to find his place or his role in a world that he doesn't want to inhabit. Mm-hmm. With Amber and Sam being the first two people to genuinely, and to a certain extent Bill too, his rival, being the first individuals to actually kind of welcome in, him into this new world, or at least give him the opportunity to find a place in it. Yeah, mate. Who was that guy who was in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 who was the one who joins the mutiny and then switches back to Yondu, the kind of skinny one of the big nose? Oh, he's a bit character actor. Yeah, he, he could be, if he was a little bulk, he's a little weaselly looking, but if he could be, um, he could be Reed, maybe he was bulked up a little bit and nastier. That could work, certainly. There's nothing, per se, saying that Reed has to be massive, just menacing. Well, he's big enough to slap Sam around. I figured he was bigger than Sam. Okay. And I think you've got Sam's wife, Brenda. There's James's family, Uh, but they're all... Who played Craglin? Ah. In Guardians of the Galaxy 2. That would go off to IMDb, which I think the mic will pick up on my end. Yeah, Sean Gunn. Okay. Yeah, that could work. Yeah, and these are the kind of folks who would do the television series, too. It's fun. It lets them dive into a interesting set of characters and inhabit them. And miniseries, I think, gives you a greater opportunity to really flesh out the, the peculiarities of these people in their day-to-day lives. I suppose the last important casting would be the man in black. Someone, I mean, you could do Tommy Lee Jones if you wanted to have a little hat tip there. He's too. He's too old. Like the the backstory I have for the character is that he joined the military probably around soon after his brother was killed in the Lebanon barracks bombing in the eighties. So he's probably about in in twenty ten. He's probably in his forties. Okay. Let's see. Who? 
You know, Matt Damon's actually pushing that. Hmm. Be a little nod to the Bourne series as well. Yeah, or Ben App. Either one. Yeah. He's definitely practiced himself under the I am disheveled and dark and gritty now. Yeah, Ben Affleck might work. Yeah, you could do that. (laughs) Ben Affleck, Men in Black by Way of Julie. Well, yeah, I mean, like, there's a sort of scariness associated with the character that, you know, the Batman who brands people (laughs) would um, have. That could work, that could work. Well, now all you need are the scripts and you're good to go. Yeah, I could write those. I had the notion of writing a script and sending it to Amazon Studios. That's true. they have some kind of crowd-judging scheme where you po- they post on their website, enough people will like it, they'll buy the rights for it. This is to as part of their attempt to rival Netflix? Oh, yeah. there's. I, listened to a pod- I started listening to a new podcast called The Creative Pen. I mean, it's not new, but it's new to me. Mm-hmm. And there's a recent episode talking about how Amazon and Netflix and Hulu are like all devouring content wanters. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I, if, I, I mean, I have my kind of old-fashioned, like if it's not on TV, it's not real. Mm-hmm. But Netflix has Man in the High Castle. I mean, all these well-done TV shows are you watch them on the computer. And you can stream them to a TV. So just because it's not on a channel doesn't mean it's not a real TV show. No, it's... I think Man in the High Castle is a great example of a massively produced piece of craftsmanship. And I've watched about five episodes to date on it. What are your thoughts? I've never watched it. I just know that it's um, it's based on an alternate history book, but it's not really, that, in my opinion, that plausible. Because even if the Nazis had won World War II, they're still stuck in Europe. Mm. Yeah, the from what I've seen, the the cinematography is gorgeous. The... Acting is overall fairly solid. I suppose my problem with it is that it's largely a Philip K. Dick story at heart, which is handsome man meets pretty lady. They get chased. A conspiracy might be involved. Mm -hmm. That's always been Philip K. Dick's M.O. when it comes to his thrillers. And it just doesn't seem to do more than that outside of pacing that narrative for too long. I mean, it's a. I think it's the Scots producing it, Ridley Scott, mm-hmm. it, who's a phenomenal. I was a huge fan of The Good Wife, which was also one of their projects, and that mm-hmm. is a beautifully written piece of work. Actually, that would be an interesting tip. You you have James's parents be Margulies, and what's the, the guy who plays the governor in The Good Wife? For a second, I thought about the governor on The Walking Dead. Which could also thinking, work. He's way too badass to be um, James's dad. No, he'd be Phil or Reed. Yeah. Um, Peter Is a character Peter Florick? Yes. Although the, 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 the detective... Chris the, Noth. Yes, Chris Noth. Is, Chris Noth could work. Chris Noth would be great as James's dad. The way he does, yeah. If, if he, in The Good Wife, where he's darker-haired. Mm-hmm. Because he looks a lot like I imagine his dad looking. He just doesn't have freckles. And come to I think of it, he's got the freckles from his mom. Come to think of it, the actor who plays Negan is also in The Good Wife. He would make a great character in The Thing in the Woods ne- too. Negan would be a great, if not, not, not. He's too much. Too. He's too good to play Reed. Uh, he's Sam. But I don't, but I don't think he, he, that might work. Yeah. 
Yeah. He certainly he's not old enough to play um Phil plus you you know Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the leader of a cult group. He was thinking Negan. No one would no one would see him as Phil. Just be Negan feeding people to a tentacle monster. <laughs> yeah, it would just be too close to the Walking Dead. But making him Sam, there's that there's that put upon element to Sam's character where he's still trying to do what's right for his family, and always unsure of. Like I, I would love to play out that moment where Brenda finally discovers he's part of the cult. Yeah, Jeffrey Dean Morgan without the Negan beard. Yeah. And without his glasses. Yeah. Cut down the menacing, make him more of a sad sack. I mean, yeah. your introduction to him was walking into Best Buy to find, what, Borat? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the, that is not the intro of a villain. Hmm. Well, if you do start working on a script for Amazon, I would be curious to what you come up with. And if you're willing to let any of us read from it or experience it on one of the shows, that'd be awesome because... Oh, wow. I just had the most evil thought ever. Okay, Who go for it. Daryl as, as Reed. Daryl, Daryl, Daryl. Oh, um, he's Thomas Hayden. No, not. I know you're talking about. He's in Death. Norman Reedus. Yes, he's in Death Stranding too. Norman Reedus as Reed. Not oh, as Reed. Reed. Yeah, as Reed. Norman Reedus would work very well. Actually, and you know who might work as Phil is Thomas Hayden Church, or Willem Dafoe, the Green Goblin. Yeah, uh, I'm not seeing it. Too. Oh sharp-edged. That's true. Church is a little softer. I'm just looking at his face. He looks like <laughs> cheekbones, his nose. Look like he's, Willem Dafoe looks like he's made of knives. <laughs> that was always my problem with the original Spider-Man. The mask was unneeded. Mm-hmm. Just have that man snarling at Spider-Man the whole time. It'll scare everyone in the theater. Well, do you have any parting advice for would-be horror writers or folks who want to engage themselves in the genre or the telling of stories for it? Now, finish the darn book. That's my problem. Is I have almost wonderful ideas, but putting in the time and effort and attention to developing them hmm. is kind of a problem. I have to make myself sit down and do it. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm ADD, but I might be getting there. So discipline, discipline, discipline. That's what you need. That's one reason I really admired Delilah S. Dawson as she sure. started writing books when she had a baby and a toddler and she can crank them out more rapidly even though those kids are older and do things mm-hmm. so she's very disciplined very focused and has a lot of responsibilities and yet is very very productive what would you say you've so learned that, toward toward enacting that discipline what is perhaps the one takeaway the one thing you've learned in this process toward making it happen that you could pass on to someone well give yourself deadlines like I had my writing group you know, I had to have the chapter ready for at least one chapter ready for writing group each every two weeks and just grind through it. That's how I got Battle for the Wastelands done. That's how I got Thing in the Woods done. I'm probably going to start doing that with Atlanta Incursion to get it done. But I have a bunch of this this coming spring. I have a lot of teacher training stuff to do. Hmm. So that might get in the way a little bit. You may find inspiration. Or you may yeah. just end up having some of the people you meet there becoming bit characters that get eaten by monsters. Well, that might be if I want to do a Kickstarter. That's what I could do. You know, um, <laughs> the more money you have, the more prominent a role your character gets. You should do it. Or Patreon. Like you may give me more than a certain amount of money per month, you get a bit part in everything. Uh, you can do it by month or by creation. So you could, for instance, if someone wants to give you X amount of money, they can get devoured in a more grotesque fashion, or even to a certain extent suggest how. They meet their untimely end. 
Yeah, or yeah, or, and you have different ranks of character importance. Like, do you want to be Phil? Do you want to be Reed? Uh, do you want to be the county attorney who's only in one scene? Just you got to pay for it. When I was in grad school, I was always interested in the idea of that collaborative element of storytelling. It would be interesting to see that work in a horror story, where yeah, characters are. Where, where characters are somewhat potentially more expendable so that you can go through them or have them be bit pieces more easily, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something we can cook up for perhaps the next time you're on. I hope you enjoyed your time on the show. Oh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, where can people find you online nowadays? I mean, I have my Twitter account is is at Matthew W. Quinn. I blog at www.accordingtoquinn.com. I have an Amazon author page, Matthew W. Quinn, and uh, that's about it. I think I don't have. I'm not into Instagram or Snapchat or all those things. Leave that to my students. Wait, the thing the monster itself doesn't have an Instagram page. No, no, fr- no fresh kills hashtag. Oh god, well, that might be worth a bit of viral marketing. <laughs> yes, that just came to me. That'd be atrocious. I fully endorse this. And uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Anyways, it was great to have you on the show. Uh, I look forward to having you on again to talk about making an audiobook or adapting this in actuality or wherever else the next step is. Or, you know, if you're, it's on this next book at that point, it's all cool. I guess great. Thank you for making this happen. No worries, mate. So that's it for the show. If you enjoyed it, you can leave a review on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app or you can show your support on patreon that's www.patreon.com slash jared surf and of course if there's a story you want to share or something that's inspired you you're welcome to tag us online at hashtag tigers hope to see you all next time Have you seen Ravenous? No, I have not. That came out around the time I wasn't allowed. My parents had let me see a lot of the movies I wanted oh, to see. I, like R-rated scary stuff. I think you would love it. It's Robert Carlyle and Guy Pierce, and it has cannibalism and banjo music. Je- Robert Carlyle, I'm seeing this picture, his Pinterest picture of him here. He could be Phil. Oh, yeah, that's true. Robert Carlyle would love that. I, watch Ravenous because Robert Carlyle plays, I won't spoil it, a rather big piece in the story and it is not understatement to say that he chews the scene this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com